Welcome to Climate Hot Seat. Bioenergy is an important tool for rural economic development as well as climate change mitigation, yet like all energy sources, there are trade-offs. In this interview, I discuss the benefits and trade-offs with guests Kathy Halverson and Aaron Pischke from Michigan Technological University. They are working to build a transdisciplinary team across six countries in the Americas, from Canada all the way to Argentina, to study the social ecological impacts and opportunities of bioenergy development. This interview was recorded in Cancun, Mexico during a storm, so you may hear some strange noises caused by the wind. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. None of us can do this on our own, and so it's really through partnerships and working across boundaries and finding those differences as much as our commonalities to tackle some of the bigger challenges that we're facing. People are doing this out of love. We don't talk about that very much, but that's why people are in this business, because they love nature, they love a particular place, they love a particular species or or birds or something. It's a human attachment to something. My biggest goal is imagining somebody 200 years or 300 years from now, like thinking, I'm so glad they did this. I'm so glad that they had the foresight to do what is not possible to do today. You're listening to Climate Hot Seat with Amanda Sesser. Welcome to the Climate Hot Seat. I'm your host, Amanda Sesser. My two guests today are part of the Inter-American Institute for Global Change research, research teams, and we're in Cancun, Mexico for the annual PI meeting. Hi, I'm Kathy Halverson from Michigan Technological University in the United States, and I'm a policy scientist, so I do research on climate change mitigation tools, um, policies that can help us slow down climate change through energy conservation and through renewable energy development. I also study biodiversity issues, and um, I study the scientific teams that do work in these fields. And I'm Erin Pischke. I'm also at Michigan Technological University with Kathy, and I'm a postdoc in the Environmental and Energy Policy Program there. I also study uh, global change problems and policies and how they impact local communities, and I mainly work in Mexico. Thanks a lot to both of you. I appreciate you joining me today. The The project that you're working on with the, the IAI, or the Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research, is called BioPyre, right? And uh, it's all, all about biofuels and, and using um, renewable sources of energy. Could you tell me a little bit about the project? Sure. So our project looks at how we can use Forest, forests to make different kinds of energy. So energy can be electricity, it can be heat, and it could be uh, liquid transportation fuels like ethanol. So we study all of those kinds of ways of making energy from forests, and we're looking at how developing those kinds of energy can maximize some of the positive impacts that we want, for instance, help us to slow down climate change because when we use energy from trees, then we're not using coal, natural gas, petroleum, fossil fuels 
that are over their life cycle contributing a lot of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and helping to cause climate change. And so we're studying those kinds of energy development from forests and we're looking at it across the Americas in six different countries. Um, we are focused on Brazil, Mexico, Canada, Uruguay, Argentina, and the United States. So we have cases that we've been studying. And we look at the impacts on, on humans, on, on people in communities close to those projects, positive and negative. For instance, jobs, people get jobs from the project, but people may also see that their water is not as clean as it used to be, or they may lose species, birds, um, bees that are in the area. So we're looking at those some of those negative impacts and some of the positive impacts and trying to maximize the positive and minimize some of the negative. Yeah, that's great. And just thinking about your your research sites spanning all the way from Uruguay to, to Canada, what is it like to work across the, the entire Americas? I'm sure that you have a, an extremely large team and um, multiple languages and a lot of uh, people to have to organize and communicate with. Well, for me, it's been very exciting because I actually got to work on the ground um, in Mexico with many people from other countries and get to know not only the local context, but also uh, be able to think about where I'm coming from, where other people are coming from, and how we look at problems in a new place with a new lens and try to come to an agreement on, okay, here's what we're looking at, here's what we um, are studying, here are some possible outcomes from our own research and how that maybe can influence or enhance um, other research that's been done and maybe in the end impact policy. Um, so from my perspective, it's been great to work with people from Argentina, from Uruguay, from Brazil, from all of the countries um, to get that uh, intercultural perspective. And, um, you know, there are also challenges that come with that. I also have to learn a new language, both in terms of what something means in Spanish, but also what uh, bioenergy processes vocabulary sounds like. So that is challenging in its own way, but I think Kathy can speak more to coordinating a large group of people like this across so many countries. So I'll let her say something about that. So yes, we have a really large team of social, natural, and engineering scientists across the six countries. So um, over 130 scientists and students have been involved in our project. Um, that brings, and I am the, the leader of the project, so my job is to coordinate all of that. That brings some challenges, but it also brings some things that are really fun and enjoyable and interesting. Um, so it can be hard to coordinate across three languages, Portuguese, Spanish, and English. It can be hard to coordinate across um, four time zones, five mm -hmm. time zones, um, and over um, many, many, many thousands of miles. So some of the things that we do that we think are really important to help to, to better manage the team and bring people together is that a lot of our meetings are done monthly 
on computers and um, conference call kinds of meetings so that we're talking regularly. But then once a year, we bring as many members of the team together as possible for a week to work together, to have some fun together, um, to learn about the different pieces. And those pieces, that those activities really help us to coordinate and do really good science together that brings together the pieces is when you're working with teams of social, natural, and engineering scientists, um, even though we are interested in solving the same problem together, so we're all interested in slowing down climate change, we have very different ways of viewing science and the science that we're conducting and understanding what's the problem, how do we solve it. We have very different ways of talking to each other different things that we study and so we need to spend a lot of time talking to each other and learning about the different pieces to do really good work where we can create the big picture from the work that we've done and Erin had a really nice metaphor that she used and we have several films out on our team and uh, Amanda you may be able to link to some of those films but Erin um, talked about something in essence I'm going to paraphrase what you said but you may be able to remember it which was something like, um, we have this huge problem, climate change mitigation, slowing climate change around the world is a huge problem, but by having this very big and complex team that's looking at all the pieces, in essence, we can make the problem smaller because we can bring the pieces together. And so I think that's a really par important part of the picture too. Yeah, and I'm sure all the diverse perspectives might generate new ideas or a novel way of looking at a problem that you hadn't even considered before. Absolutely. So for instance, I'm a, I'm a social scientist and I study um, how governments can make policies that try to help us solve environmental problems. And I work a lot with engineering scientists and ecological scientists and we bring um, very different ways of looking at the problems but when we start to work together and be able to bridge those differences then we have really powerful pictures of what we're looking at so for instance um, on our bio, biopire project we have collected data about birds and people in the communities that have bioenergy projects they're um, how much they care about birds, what they believe is happening to birds in their areas, and the bioenergy development changes the kinds of trees and plants that are in their areas. And so we know from the ecological work that's been done on the project that that can have very negative impacts on the birds that are in the area. And But there are also some really great strategies, great tools that we can use to try to reduce those negative impacts. And so when we look at the fact that people in the human communities, in the communities around the projects, really care about those birds, but don't necessarily have the information to understand how they're being impacted and how they could be protected, the working with the biologists on the team, they give us that information about how they're being impacted and how they can be protected that we can bring back to the people. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned a little bit about the, um, you, you're looking at the impact of biofuels on, on birds. What types of biofuels are you talking about? What types of land changes do they, do they cause? And does that differ by country? Good question. And so um, when I talk about different types of bioenergy, um, we can make it from so many different kinds of usually plants. 
And so we're focused on making it from trees. And so some of those sources of bioenergy are, for instance, just uh, regular oak trees and maple trees like we would have in the United States and Canada. And we use them in the United States and people are very familiar with the idea of burning trees for firewood for, to have a fire. Well, often we do that on a bigger scale. We could do that in a school. Um, we can do that in a community that has uh, utility at the community level that uses wood to produce heat for the community. We can also use those trees to make electricity. Um, so in Canada and the United States, we're looking at using things like oaks and maples to make electricity. In Argentina, we're looking at eucalyptus trees that are being used to create pellets to, to create heat. Um, so that's another different type of species that's being used for a different type of bioenergy. In Mexico and in Brazil, we're looking at plants that are being used to make biodiesel. And those plants include something called heterofa, which is a, a bush, basically. Um, it's a kind of a plant called a euphorbia that people sometimes grow in their gardens, but this is in the bush form. And then also palm oil from oil palm trees that can be used for biodiesel. And so there are um, different types of species that can be used for different types of bioenergy. Erin, what types of bioenergy projects were you working on in Mexico? My work in Tabasco State in Mexico is focusing on those oil palm plantations that Kathy was talking about. And uh, your question earlier about you know, land use change with some of these bioenergy feedstocks, uh, in Mexico, there's a lot of cattle ranching and um, ag agricultural lands and secondary forests. And we've seen kind of a mix between those landscapes changing to different scales of oil palm plantations. So from the very small scale in people's backyards, they have one or two plants maybe, and then they cooperatively sell them to companies for the oil. Uh, and then we have uh, kind of a mid-level scale and then a larger scale plantation style. So I was looking at kind of the differences between impacts of those types of plantations down to the local scale and benefits people might receive and the impacts of those plants on their, their livelihoods. And so uh, the way that land use unfolds in the different countries we're working in, as Erin noted, it can be very different. Um, but one of the changes that we're seeing in several countries is changing from ranching to um, what we call uh, bioenergy feedstock. And feedstock is just the word for the material that we use to make the energy. So we see in Argentina shifting from citrus crops and ranching to, and native forest to eucalyptus. In Mexico, shifting from ranching and native forest to hetrofa and oil palm. In the United States and Canada, it's not so much changing the land use, it's, as one of our team members said, it's changing the end use. So in the past, we used our forests completely for paper and lumber, and increasingly we're using some of the waste products from those processes to make bioenergy. Great. Yeah, I'm, it's very interesting thinking about the just the diversity of projects that, that your team is investigating. Erin, coming back to what you mentioned about the, the impacts being different based on the scale of the project 
and it seems like usually the the small scale projects have a have a lower environmental impact and and the large scale plantations i would imagine would have a uh you know the the largest environmental and and also social impact but is, is that what you found and then i'm sure it's much more nuanced than that and if you could just describe a little about the um the, the stakeholders in the region and, and who's benefiting and, and who's being impacted neg negatively for Tabasco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Tabasco, uh, we do see that broad range and kind of on a higher scale broad bird's eye view, I would say that the larger plantations have come in um, and sometimes they displace other plantations like plant, uh, plantain or banana plantations. So the use of the land isn't changing much, maybe even the number of employees isn't changing much, but sometimes if it's a plantation that's coming in to replace cattle ranching, for example, there is a lot more employment that's generated in you know, employing the local populations. Um, on the kind of medium scale where there's maybe a community scale oil palm plantations, uh, obviously there's fewer employees uh, that are employed, um, maybe fewer environmental uh, impacts that are that are negative because you can intercrop other plants between the oil palm um, trees themselves. Whereas on a larger scale, the plantations usually have big machines that go through and you can't intercrop with other with other crops. So at the very local level, this the smallest scale cooperative level where people are working with their neighbors to jointly grow oil palm. We've seen that as a really great model to support. Uh, from my own perspective, just talking with people in the communities, they receive the money directly uh, from selling the, the oil palm to companies. Uh, they can use their family as the labor laborers and um, they can also plant food for themselves in their gardens with the oil palm. And it generates community benefits. A lot of the people can sell excess uh, flowers, for example, that they intercrop, or they also grow peppers and other cacti and plants in between the plants that they're able to sell kind of at a larger scale and use that by uh, kind of join, join forces to create community good and then share the risk also. So we can mm -hmm. see that as mm -hmm. being a really great model. But again, that's from my own perspective as a, kind of an anecdotal perspective. Um, Aaron expressed it, it really well. And I think that um, one of the things that we can see because we have social, natural and engineering scientists is that really there are a lot of trade-offs, right? And so sometimes there's some really positive uh, community impacts and social impacts from having smaller scale projects, mm -hmm. but then you also lose efficiencies of scale. And working with engineers, we've learned to think a lot about that sure. as well. So maybe if you have a large scale corporate plantation, you're disturbing more land, but that corporation is in a position to mitigate some of that land use change and protect other areas. So there's they're providing that trade-off. And then we may be producing that same amount of fuel much more efficiently. So in the big picture, we don't need as much land change. So, so I guess that's one of the things that we see as a team is we really have no simple answers. There's always going to be trade-offs. And that's one of the things that's really interesting.
that's fascinating to me because I it's unexpected, right? But it, you're right by having engineers at the table talking about economies of scale and and production costs and everything. It, it, it does make a lot of sense. And um, Aaron mentioned the the word risk and how if you're doing it in a cooperative way, then then you have a shared risk. So Kathy, I heard you you talk at the meeting about the example with Hytrofa and and some big risk, and I think it would be great for you to share that with our listeners. Sure. Well, I think that for Aaron and I, it's um, really powerful to be here in Cancun, so close to our study communities that experienced a shift over to major hetropha cultivation. And hetropha is this bushy plant that I talked about earlier that is produces uh, seeds that have oil in them, and that is useful for things like biodiesel, but it doesn't have a lot of other uses, and it's spiny, and the plants are poisonous, mm -hmm. um, and so the three companies in Yucatan, um, within just a couple of years of each other, invested in creating thousands of hectares of hetropa, and they did this because the Mexican government um, incentivized, paid money to encourage them to establish these fields, but they didn't do test plots. So they didn't establish how productive the hetropa were going to be. Um, so they converted thousands of hectares over into hetropa. They hired a lot of people from the communities. And this was really beneficial for the communities because a lot of these people would instead, if they didn't have the jobs with the companies, they would be going three or four hours to work in Cancun, where we're based right now in the tourist industry. And that would mean that if they're working in the tourist industry as a way to get employment, they are going to be living in Cancun all week or all month, and maybe going home once a week or once a month just to support their families. But when the Hatropa plantations were there, they had jobs where they could go back and forth mm -hmm. every day. And some of those jobs were actually quite well paid. The international company that was involved had very good safety records and so on. Um, so there's a real trade-off in terms of how those people were impacted. When we talked to them, they were so happy to have the jobs. It felt like they really contributed to the community, but then they were left behind with um, basically nothing and land that's largely unusable right now because there's these spiny toxic plants on it. They can't ranch it. Um, and, and so it, and one of the reasons that that happened is that the policies did not encourage the big picture look at Hetropa and how and encourage the companies to go from cultivating through to processing it into biodiesel. Instead, the policies focused all on the encouraging them, encouraging them to cultivate, establish the plantations of Hetropa. And so there are real gaps there in terms of what the policy did. Um, and that resulted in an example of a failure of bioenergy project, which I would estimate I've been working on bioenergy projects for probably about 15 years now. And I would say that more than 50% of the time, the projects fail. And it's one of the risks that we see with this innovative, cutting edge kinds of energy technologies. And, and so when we're talking about risk, we see that maybe arguably the people in these communities absorbed a lot of the risk and the companies, they got their money from the incentives and they went on to other things. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and then the ecosystems absorbed a lot of that risk. This is 
Yucatan is a very ecologically rich area, lots of migratory species coming through, and we lost some of the native forest that was there. So I think the risk was displaced to some degree from the companies onto the ecosystems and the people. When I first asked the two of you to join me today for the, for the podcast interview, I was giving you a little background on what we do with Climate Hot Seat, and I, I often talk about it as a climate adaptation podcast. And Kathy instantly said, oh, so you're, you're giving up on mitigation? You're going straight to, to adaptation? And, and it, it actually surprised me that you said that, but you know, on, on Climate Hot Seat, we talk about you know, mitigation, adaptation, climate change science, we talk about contamination and, and drought and flooding and, and things that may not even be related to, to, to climate change or you know, demographic change, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a broader conversation. But the point that you made, right, is, is are we giving up on mitigation? Okay, And that's something that we really need to think about because in, in, with my background, we basically did give up on mitigation because the argument was, we don't have the power to change the carbon output. That has to be, you know, at the Paris Agreement, international government and international policy level to, you know, put caps on carbon emissions or make more fuel efficient vehicles or switch from coal power to um, wind power or so forth. We felt, you know, feel in the, in the conservation field that we can't do anything about mitigation. And, and but that's exactly what you're doing in Biopire is, is you're building a network of people that are interested in mitigation and are actually doing it on the, on the ground. And then you're studying it. You're studying the impacts. You're studying the successes you're, and, and the, the failures or the challenges. How do you frame mitigation in your work and, and what motivated you to, to see this opportunity? For me, one of my great passions is is biodiversity so i really care about the plants and the animals that are in healthy intact ecosystems and so i'm particularly worried about climate change and the negative impacts it's going to have over time on those kinds of species and so i i think that we often especially for those of us based in the united states get focused on the international levels of policy making but in fact we know that a lot of climate change policy is made at many scales. And in the United States, some of our best policies being made by cities, is being made by states. And so, and we have a lot of opportunity to impact that. So to, to enforce those policies, to really implement those policies in ways that they're gonna be effective, they need a lot of understanding of the science behind things. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if we're gonna develop renewable energy technologies, right um what how are we going to think about the trade-offs and what are those trade-offs going to be so that we can get the benefits in terms of um, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions but we can try to minimize some of those negative impacts on things that we care about like people and ecosystems i also in another research project fo focus on energy conservation and so we're studying households and how they can conserve food, energy, and water 
to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So our work is really on kind of, you could think of it as barriers to energy conservation and renewable energy adoption and how to overcome those barriers mm -hmm. so that when cities and states and countries create climate change policy, they have some understanding of how they can create the best policy that's going to have the best impact um, that, that we can. And I also think of mitigation in terms of adaptation because when I talk to people in Mexico, in the local communities where these projects, which, you know, if they turn out well and do what they're supposed to do and do produce biofuels and bioenergy that can re help reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions in these countries, then that can lessen the impacts that climate change has on the communities where people are perceiving that they're already there are changes happening and so they're adapting to some of these changes and unless we improve things they'll continue to feel the impacts of climate change caused by uh, global changes and uh, so i see the policies that we're studying that could have a potential to mitigate climate change impacts uh, also informing what's happening on the ground and the impacts locally and how people are adapting to what could be resolved by these policies, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. In, in the sites where you're working in, in these various countries, how are they funded? You mentioned that there were some incentives by the, the Mexican government, so uh, that would be an example of a, a publicly funded uh, project, or at least a public-private partnership with, with some of the corporations. Is that the, the common model? or? There are a lot of different policy tools that are used to encourage renewable energy development. And sometimes there are incentives. So you have governments at different scales who are paying people money to encourage them to create a renewable energy project. And that could be at different scales. It could be a company that's creating biofuel. That can be a house that's putting a solar panel, panel on their roof. Um, it can be a community that's developing a solar garden. So there are incentives at different scales, but we also use regulations that mandate particular levels of production of renewable energy. So for instance, in the United States, most of the states have renewable portfolio standards which mandate that those states produce a certain amount of um, electricity from renewable sources. So most states have either a 10%, 15%, or 20% mandate that the utilities in their states produce their electricity from up to 10, 15, 20% renewable energy. So we're using both of those. And we also use tools like providing information. Mm -hmm. So if you want to develop and implement a re renewable energy project, we have governments that are funding science, like the science that we're doing, that helps to provide information to companies that want to develop those technologies. That, that's great. I'm sure that there's a lot of resources for people that are interested about, you know, I want to start a community solar solar garden. No, that sounds fantastic. So uh, do you have any tips for people that are interested in finding just, you know, where, where to start? Sure. Um, well, I can provide you with some uh, links and websites that could give information. But in the United States, the uh, Department of Energy websites are really good sources of information about those things. And we also have energy agencies at the state level. And if people are thinking about trying to adopt something like that in their community or on their household, then it, it 
would be helpful to understand the policies within their state because they do tend to vary across U.S. states and probably also provinces in other countries. Sure. A, a word that you use often in, in your project, in the BioPyre project, is transdisciplinary. I've heard a lot about interdisciplinary, but transdisciplinary is something new. What, what does that mean? In our research and in many other research projects that I've studied, uh, transdisciplinary research means that you're broadening the dialogue of who is involved in the research. Uh, so you'll bring in academics, but then you'll bring in non-academics. So the academics could be from multiple disciplines working together with different methodologies. And then you can bring in non-academics, which could include policymakers, government officials, NGO representatives, community members. So it could be a very broad uh, group of people. And then a lot of times transdisciplinary research is also problem-centered. So rather than it being about theory or advancing scientific knowledge for its own sake, you start with a community and their problem and what they identify as something that's important to them and work together with all of these different actors to think of how you can begin to understand and maybe solve the problem uh, from that perspective. So you have a transdisciplinary team in what, four or five countries? Six. Six countries. What's the point in, in having that many stakeholders, that many scientists, that many countries and languages. You mentioned earlier that it's a challenge to, to do all that coordination. So uh, why do you go through all that? It's a good question. Um, first of all, it, it, it's fun. We get to work with amazing people. But more importantly, in terms of the work that we're doing, these problems that we're studying are global change problems. They're being caused by global um, factors mm -hmm. across countries, and they can be only be solved by taking a global, international, cross-country view. And so working across all of these six countries that are part of our team, we have a much better understanding of the causes and potential solutions to those problems. Thanks a lot. I think that it really is the model for for future work when it comes to these these global scale problems or even regional scale problems and, and conservation. We often refer to them as the wicked problems. Yes, absolutely. And so I think that this is this is one of the reasons why I am such a big supporter and believer in the Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research because it's an organization that was formed from 19 countries across the Americas to help to create science that helps to solve global change problems from an international point of view. All of their research funding goes to research teams that come from multiple countries. So they, they pay for a lot of good science to solve different kinds of global change problems, but they also do capacity building to help people in the countries that are part of the IAI 
to be able to move toward where they can do really great international science and contribute to solving global change problems. So it's um, there are a few other international science agencies I know about, uh, but the IAI is the one with which I've worked most closely, and they do amazing work, and that's why we're here today in an IAI meeting of the different scientists who are working on global change problems with the IAI. And the researchers aren't just interested in doing science to advance the field of science. There's a, a real focus on policy relevance and and having an impact on the ground in the, in the member countries. Absolutely. Um, so at this meeting that we've been having this week, we have been thinking a lot about the policy implications of the work we're doing and how we can communicate the results of our science to a wide audience, including especially policy makers. And the IAI is doing a great job helping us to move toward where we can be a more effective communicators. And as someone who was a student on this project formerly, I can also speak to the ability to now begin a career where I'm already thinking in terms of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research where I've already built a network of people mm -hmm. from different disciplines across different countries. And besides making great friends, I think it really does help me think about um, how to appreciate where other people are coming from, uh, try to understand their perspectives, and that it really does help build capacity of a younger generation that's now going to try to understand and solve global change problems. Well, I plan to interview the executive director of the Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research. So if anyone is interested in hearing more about the organization and, and what it's about, and uh, it just has its 25th anniversary, and so now the, the IAI is thinking about what they're going to do for the next 25 years. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And, and just to uh, leave the listeners, you mentioned that you have some videos, and I'm sure you have a website and some social media outlets. Uh, why don't you... Give us a little information. Sure. Um, well, we were lucky enough to have professional filming of, of some of our meetings and events, and there's some short videos. And one video is about the BioPyre team and uh, the work that we're doing together. Another video, two other videos, really focus more on transdisciplinarity. One is basically a short video focused on defining it and illustrating the concept of transdisciplinarity, where we have scientists and people from other sectors working together. And then the other one is focused on transdisciplinarity and a professional development um, meeting that the Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research hosted to develop transdisciplinary teamwork skill building for people from 15 countries across the Americas. So we have three really nice um, professionally produced videos that we'll provide you with access to. We also have a website. The website has links to a lot of the activities that we've been doing to teach people about transdisciplinarity, some information about our project, our research papers, and so on. So more information there. Thanks to both of you, Kathy and Aaron. I really appreciate your time, and uh, it sounds like you're doing some amazing work, and thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Amanda. It was really wonderful to have this opportunity to speak to your listeners and to talk about the great work that we've been doing and the wonderful people who are working with us. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. If you have requests on topics for future episodes, please let us know. 
If you would like us to feature your work on adaptation, transformation, or sustainability solutions, we would love to hear from you. Look for more episodes of Climate Hot Seat on 21sustainability.com. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to donate, head over to 21sustainability.com slash podcast and click the donate button. We appreciate all of your continued support. Climate change isn't something that one person or one country is going to solve alone. But by working together, we can not only solve present challenges, but we can create a more just, equitable world to live in at the same time. This is a 21 Sustainability production. Editing by Jason Mitson. Music by Lee Roosevelt. Follow me on Twitter, at Professor Sesser.